it is my privilege today to introduce, that's what I'm doing up here, I'm going to introduce somebody, I'm going to introduce Mark Stromberg. Uh, Mark is the superintendent of the Northwest Conference. If you're not familiar with our church, we're part of the Covenant family of churches, and so Mark oversees this, um, this uh, region that, that we're in. There's some information in here about the Covenant, about the Northwest Conference, a little bit about Mark, and as I was thinking about the introduction today, because I was thinking about this, believe it or not, um, as I was thinking about it, the, the, the thing I couldn't get out of my head was a commercial that came out right around the time that I was getting to know Mark. It was the commercial for herding cats. I don't know if you ever saw that. I think it came out at a Super Bowl. If not, make sure you YouTube this one, Herding Cats. It's a great commercial. And Mark has, uh, in his role as a superintendent, he's got a lot of amazing things that he gets to see. He gets to see God at work, not just in individual churches, but, but in, in, a, in a bigger sense. And it, that's really exciting. But, but one of his jobs is to take the 145-ish churches in our region, Covenant churches, and churches that all have their, their own ideas about how things should go and their own opinions and their own leaders and to try to help us move forward together. And, boy, that's not something that comes naturally, you know, to me and to a lot of us. Uh, I've, I've got a long string of bosses and teachers and coaches who were so glad when I moved on, you know. <laughs> but, but Mark is somebody that I can follow. Uh, he is a great leader. And my wife and I were new, were new to the covenant when we started this church, and Mark is one of the, the individuals, probably the key individual, who... Um, who made us say, yeah, we want to walk with this family of churches. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have Mark here. I'm thrilled that more of you get a chance to meet him. And I'm ex- excited that Mark gets to meet more of you because he is in the response, he does have the responsibility of trying to help churches move forward. I'm sure there's been quite a few times where he's had to step up in front of a congregation. And when he stepped up, he had to breathe deep and he had to send up a prayer because he knew it was going to be hard um, uh, because of the, the dynamics. And I'm, I'm excited that with all of our growing pains that we have, you know, step by step, I believe that this is a congregation that is really moving towards becoming more of a healthy, missional church, the type of church that Mark really wants to see across, across this region. So I am, I'm excited. I'm excited that more of you get to meet Mark. I'm excited that uh, Mark gets to meet more of you. And he's going to be giving a message today, and it's coming out of Psalm 39. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm 39, verses 1 through 13. I want to let you know, too, as we're turning there, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We have a stack of Bibles at each of these tables every week. They're there for you. Uh, It's a gift. So please uh, take one home if you don't have a Bible at home. All right, Psalm 39 says this. I will watch my ways. And I will keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Every one is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. 
I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts. Father, I, I do thank you for this message that Mark brought and was bringing again. It is a message from you, perhaps one of the most important that anyone could ever hear. So, Lord, we pray not only that you'll speak through him again, as you did in our first service, but we pray, Lord, that you're going to give us ears to hear. You're going to give us hearts to receive this important message. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please join me in welcoming Mark Stromberg? It, it's age for me. I don't. I don't know about for you. It, Chris is kind of the Pat Boone of the, uh, or the uh, Dick, uh, the Dick Clark of the uh, Northwest Conference. You know, you know, Chris, Chris and Laura. They. I just keep getting older looking, and they just kind of stay the same. So this is. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, great crowd, and uh, it, uh, grateful that you're here. It, it reminds me of the story of the the bishop that came and was up on the platform with a pastor in a sanctuary that sat a thousand people and there were only 14 people. And he was ticked and leaned over to the pastor and whispered and he said, didn't you tell him I was coming? And uh, the, the pastor responded, no, but they must have found out anyway. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, it's great to be with you uh, today and to be able to share uh, from God's word with you in just a few moments. Uh, again, I represent 145 covenant churches in uh, Minnesota, North, South Dakota, Western Wisconsin. Um, you know, and I feel so badly because John Taylor in your congregation is on the board of Minnehaha Academy. Every single time I preach, I mention Minnehaha Academy. The only time I haven't in like 13 years happened to be when John, who's on the board, is in the room in the first service. But uh, actually, my campus, my office is on the campus of Minnehaha Academy, and actually, the Minnehaha Academy is, is actually owned by the Northwest Conference. And so I'm a graduate of Minnehaha Academy. Uh, I'm an example of, uh, maybe a bad example sometimes, but, but I'm an example of someone that really has come up through the ministry that our churches have together. And so we're an association of covenant churches. And, and it's a reminder that even while uh, many things, maybe most things, local churches do best, local churches don't do everything best. They can't. In other words, you're having snow camp, and I leaned over and whispered to Chris, where is that going to be? And he said... Covenant Pines. The reason there's Covenant Pines is why? Because churches joined together and said, let's have a Bible camp. We don't have many, we have five camps, by the way, in our conference, but we don't have many churches that would say, you know what, let's buy a 300 acres on a nice lake and build chapels and cabins and have manage, you know, director and staff. Um, our churches can't do that. But, you know, when churches join together, we're able to have a Bible camp. And, and I came to faith in Christ at Covenant Pines my first year of Trailblazer Camp. I was sitting two rows back in the chapel right over by the lake, and uh, the pastor at the time said, and we used to hear this a lot, he said, you know, someday God is going to call some of you into full-time Christian service. And I remember looking out the window. I was first-year trailblazer, what are you, nine, ten, something like that? And I remember looking out the window and thinking, that's me. And, and I don't know why I knew, but I did. And I knew that I knew. And I knew that I knew that I knew. 
And then I went back to squirreling around with my friends again. But I did have about two seconds where I've, I've said it this way. It was like having an adult brain in a little boy's body. And I just had clarity. So to this day, if I go up and speak at Covenant Pines, I go sit right in that same pew, right by the window, look out. And each of the camps have its own incense. You know, every camp has its own smell. I could, you know, you could shut your eyes and take a whiff in the chapel, and you'd say, oh, I'm at the chapel at Covenant Pines. But, but for me, it's, a, it's really, it's almost a sacred incense. I look out the window, and it, you know, this is, uh, you know, probably 48 years ago, 49 years ago, and it's just like yesterday. Uh, I grew up at First Covenant Church downtown Minneapolis. Uh, growing up, my pastor, not to make her uh, ears blush, but my pastor growing up was Paul Freiling and Mary Lochner's father. And Paul and his wife Gladys are two of the most important people in my life. And I think about them, quite frankly, every day. Every day. And uh, they're, they're two of my heroes. So I grew up uh, with Paul Freiling as my pastor till I was late into high school. Um, also, I graduated from Minnehaha Academy, and that influenced me. I have a son who lives in Friendship Place, uh, one of our enabling residents, you know, right on the campus of Rice Creek Covenant Church. He's 27, but he's the equivalent of about an 18-month-old. And, uh, and yet, I am continue to be the recipient of the good things that happen when churches join together, whether it's supporting missionaries, starting new churches. Your church would not exist had it not been for the fact that there were existing churches, some of them 100-plus years old at the time, that said, let's pool our resources, our money, to be able to provide money for this. And so we're grateful for those churches, and quite frankly, we always need to be paying this forward. So we need our new churches to say, oh, that's right, even though Mark or the conference is out of sight, let's not get them, let them be too far out of mind. I, I said in the first service, it's kind of like being the lifeguard, and there are 145 people out in the water swimming. And while you'd like to go over and, uh, and swim with the people that are playing water volleyball, because that's fun, at the, any given time, there are 20 people that are drowning. So what you do is you push by the other 125 to get to the 20 that are drowning. And, and quite frankly, my role is a lot of that. It's kind of like churches don't need us or me, not me, you know what I mean. But they don't need what we provide until they do, then they really do. And so appreciate your prayers, uh, you know, in your bulletin every once in a while. If you list missionaries or something, we'd appreciate if you just put conference staff in there to remember us in prayers, because oftentimes we're dealing with really hard things, even as pastors do. But I've been, I've been a pastor much longer than I've been at the conference office, and it just tends to accelerate, because usually by the time we're called, uh-oh, we've got a real problem. We thought we could fix it. We were embarrassed by it. We were ashamed of it. We were sure we could do it. Now it doesn't matter who knows, because we're in trouble. And so appreciate your prayers and also appreciate your financial support as we continue to plant churches. Just uh, for a second, out in the lobby there are some materials. Our recent newsletter for the Northwest Conference. Um, uh, sometimes people say, what in the world do you people do? Uh, here's kind of a bucket list we put together. You can look at that. We have something that meet the staff. It shows who our staff uh, members are at the conference. Um, something that's a ministry overview. It talks about our, our vision being healthy missional churches. Our mission, more focused for us, being healthy missional leaders, both pastoral and lay, because so much rises and falls on leadership. We know that to be the truth uh, in anything, and certainly it is within the Church of Jesus Christ. Our three priority areas are congregational vitality, church planting, and children, youth, and family. Uh, these are the three things we focus on. So we have directors in each of these areas. 
Congregational vitality because, quite frankly, if churches aren't healthy, nothing else happens. You can't afford to take a risk. You can't support missionaries. You can't help start new churches. You can't start it. If you're just trying to keep your doors open, if that's at the end of the year you say, we had a great year. Why? We didn't close. We believe God has so much more for his church. And so this is the first among equals. But secondly, church planting. We just rolled out at our uh, annual meeting for the conference down at Rochester Covenant on May 1 through 3, a new initiative called 50 by 25, our mission to plant. Our goal is, and this is out in the lobby, our goal is to plant 50 new covenant churches within the uh, boundaries of the Northwest Conference in the next 10 years. It's an aggressive goal. We have 145 churches. We're trying to plant 50 more in the next decade. And uh, why do we plant churches? We plant churches because it's the single most effective evangelistic strategy we have. Every year, churches have to turn in. It's kind of like sweeps month where they have to turn in their numbers on how many people were in worship and how many you know, people in uh, the high school group or et cetera. And then one of the categories is conversions. And I realize that can be a little hard to quantify because we know we're pouring into the lives of our children and all of the rest. But you know what? Year after year, 90% of the conversion growth that is reported comes from churches that are 10 years old or less. That's, that's just the reality. And there are all, all kinds of sociological reasons for that. It can feel less freaky to come into Shoreview Community Center than to go into a church building if the whole notion of church freaks you out. I mean, there are reasons for it. But it also allows us to reach into people groups that we wouldn't be able to reach. And we have a Laotian church. Now we have five uh, Latino churches. How am I, you know, as an f- old white guy, how am I going to navigate trying to reach uh, uh, adult Buddhists? I'm not going to. But we have a Laotian pastor who can. But the, reason, the reality is we can grease the skids. In my role, I grease the skids for Sudin Penke to do what Sudin, what Sudin can do and I can't do. So we appreciate your financial support, your prayer support, uh, our third priority, children, youth, and family. It's said sometimes uh, that you know children are, and youth are the church of tomorrow. We all know that that's not true. They're the church of today. Here's the reality. I am, and people that look like me, people of my age, we are the church of yesterday and today. Fair to say? We are. We're the church of yesterday and today. A little, hopefully, a little bit of tomorrow. We'll talk about this in a bit. But yesterday and today. Our children are the church of today and tomorrow. Now, we're both the church of today. But you know what? Today and tomorrow has to trump yesterday and today. It has to. Every day of the week. Um, we are evangelical people. We're evangelical churches that believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We've been handed something. I was handed something by Paul Freiling and others. It's my responsibility not to do my own thing, but to make sure that I am faithfully transmitting to those that come behind us the things that we were taught. This is our responsibility. It's more our responsibility to teach it than it is for them to receive it because we were given it. And so our priority is children, youth, and family. So I'd encourage you, if you're interested in any of these things, to pick up uh, brochures in the lobby, and I'm done with this now, other than to say, besides the faithful giving for churches for this uh, church planting initiative, we are looking for individuals, quite frankly, some individuals that might have some means, that are not going to pour all their money into their local church. We've had pro athletes that are not going to pour all their money into their local church. It would actually mess up the church, because what happens when they get traded? And that's happened to us, by the way. And so we're looking for folks that would say, I want to make a generational difference. I want to do something exponential with some of my resources. If you would be, an, and you'd not, you have to be a pro athlete to do this. But if you would feel prompt to do that, please especially pick this one up and feel free to call me to talk to me 
about that. Well, again, great to be here with you now to be able to share uh, from God's word. The former superintendent before me was Jim Fredheim, and his dad, Art, was also a pastor. And Art, in his uh, later years, became a chaplain in a nursing home, a covenant nursing home, and uh, one day found, got wind that in this nursing home, a new resident had moved in who had been a professional jazz pianist. And he thought, this is great, because you're always looking for musicians to accompany in chapels and things. So he came up to him and said, do you know, uh, do you know any hymns? Can you play hymns? Oh, yeah. Do this. So he said, the song we sang earlier, do you know how great thou art? He goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. He said, would you play it for our chapel? You bet. So he comes into the chapel Incredible pianist. He's accompanying for the song. Verse 1, how great thou art. Verse 2, verse 3. And then he does this big segue, you know, like you're going to raise it up an octave and really belt it out. And during his segue, he forgot where he was, and he broke into Mac the Knife. (laughs) Now, some of you are laughing, and some of you don't think that's funny. And that's exactly the point of the psalm. that, That you laugh or you cry. And there can be a little bit of both in that. By the way, they never got to the concluding verse because of that. But this is the reality. And and you know what? King David, 3,000 years ago, brooded fiercely about this at first, and then a little more gently. And it's this. What do we do with the brevity of life? What do we do with life's transiency? What do we do with how swiftly it goes by? And you know, sometimes I'm in with old... And by the way, I just have to say, you have... And I hope you will affirm your worship leaders. Your worship leaders are as good as any in any size church that I I speak in. So you just, you need to know that. Um, But, but, you know, this this is so important. What do we do with the transient nature of our life. And, and how do we handle this? And I can go into existing churches that are more traditional and, and of older folks, and you kind of assume, well, yeah, they need to be thinking about this stuff. But you know what? All of us need to, do, to be thinking about these things at any age. At any age. And uh, I mentioned the first service, I'd go to pastors' midwinter conferences uh, every year, and I felt like one of the young bucks. And I was. And year after year, I'd go, and I'd be with my friends, and we were kind of the young bucks. And then one year, this was not gradual. It wasn't like I saw it coming. But one year, I went there and looked around, and all my contemporaries, we said, what just happened? We, we are not the young pastors anymore. There are all these young men and women. We're actually viewed by them as being sort of the older ones. This is what happens. Things can change. This was a problem for King David. And it can be a problem for us, too, depending on how we handle it. What do we do with life's brevity? Growing up, uh, my dad used to say to me when when I was in high school, man, I feel like I just got out of the Army. And I used to laugh under my breath at him. Uh, But I don't laugh anymore about those things. He was referring back to World War II. Uh, because this is the way it is. Life, time can go by so quickly that the days and the weeks and the months and the years, they just, they just fly by. And that can be a problem. It can be a problem for us. 
it was certainly a problem for David. So let me ask you, what answers did David find? And let that be our quest this morning, just for a few minutes. Because his answers are also ours. First, if we are to handle life's brevity, we first of all have to face the fact of it honestly. We have to face the fact of it honestly. In the covenant, we uh, help churches with missional vitality, and we have a workshop called Veritas. What does the word Veritas mean? Truth. Jesus says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you. And, and here's one of the little, uh, uh, you know, little taglines we use. We say this, there's no vitality without reality. There's no vitality without reality. You know, if I have an addiction and all of my family and friends gather around for an intervention and they all confront me and my response is, you all have problems. You all have problems. I am never going to get helped because I'm not dealing with reality. There will be no vitality without reality. Jesus says, you'll know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. If you don't know the truth, you cannot be set free. There's no vitality without reality, and because of that, we have to face the fact of life's brevity honestly. The psalmist is a realist. He's not a pessimist. Some of the psalms are happy and joyful. Some of them are tough. And we go, well, that's kind of a downer. Well, it might be, but it's true. Verses 4 and 5 says this, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each person's life is but a breath. You see, these are hot words expressing an extreme view of our frailty and mortality, but they are true words. And there's something to be said for an honest acceptance of the fact that our physical existence has the breath of disintegration and death upon it, regardless of our age. Growing up at First Covenant, and Mary will know this, up in the, what was called the Swedish room, uh, just kind of up the steps from the foyer, there's a thing on the wall, kind of a rose-mauled, Swedish-y looking thing. And uh, it, it almost looks like the, uh, old Olymp or the, the Olympic steps, you know, for the gold medal and that, but it goes like this. And it has a little Swedish boy and girl in their little old Swedish garb, but I doubt anyone actually ever dressed like this, but, but uh, you know, holding hands, and there's these little kids, you know. And then it shows them a little bigger, a little bigger on different steps, and then on steps, and they're going down, and then the last one, they're like this, with canes, you know, way down like this. And uh, it, it's mindful of, of life, and Joseph Cook's words, which says this, man's life means tender teens, teachable 20s, tireless 30s, fiery 40s, forceful 50s, serious 60s, sacred seven, seri uh, serious 60s, sacred 70s, aching 80s, shortening breath, the sod, God. Oh, but it's true. Jim Fredheim used to say this, remember, Mark, the first utensil and the last utensil that many people in life is a spoon. And there's truth to this. Ouch. But this is the way it is. 
um, not upbeat, but true nevertheless. Honesty, dealing with life's brevity. We must be honest enough to face the fact that we are fleetingly mortal. We are fleetingly mortal. If we live to be 10,000 years old and died, big deal. What's that when contrasted and compared to all of eternity? It's still a drop in the bucket. And obviously we know we don't come close to that life expectancy. The average lifespan has been increased in recent years by seven years. Whoopee. It's not that big of a deal. We are not only mortal, but we are briefly and swiftly mortal. As in the poet's powerful line, Times horses keep galloping down the lessening hill. We are fleetingly mortal. But you know what? We are also uncertainly mortal. In other words, we, we strike a law of averages. Some people only live to be 10. My, my son, by the way, uh, when he was one, went into Minneapolis Children's for, at this point it was already his like fifth major open-heart surgery, he was given a 99% fatality risk in the surgery. They gave him a 1% chance of making it. He's 27 now. But we sat in a, in a boardroom with the chief of staff and his attorney, or attorney from the hospital, the anesthesiologist and his attorney, the surgeon and his attorney, and we had to sign off saying that we would not press charges they just said, well, we're willing to try something, but a 1% chance? Well, some people live to be 10 or 20 or 30. or The, the, the fortunate ones, maybe we'd say are 90, that is depending on their situation, if they can keep how great thou art and mack the knife straight. But, but it's a law of averages, and, and to average these things out mean nothing as far as you and I are concerned. When King David asked to know the number of his days, he's praying in vain. Why? Because that number is hidden from all of us. This is part of the risk of living. Death always awaits an ambush. It's not ours to know how and when it's going to strike. Ouch. My father-in-law is just a tremendous man. And he's 83 and he still works full-time in his business. And when he was little, his parents would send him up uh, to the farm up in the Red River Valley, his grandpa's farm, to get him out of the city for the summer. And, and he was up there with his, when he was eight years old with his older brother Stanford, who was 12. And Stanford said, hey, let's go down to the gravel pits on the property, on, on the pond, and let's build a raft. So they did, and Stanford, as being the older and feeling responsible, said, I'll go out first and try it out. And he went out, and it sank, and he drowned. And my father-in-law ran up and down the shoreline screaming, totally traumatized him, and quite frankly, with all due respect, I think has probably experienced some level of post-traumatic stress over it. Kind of like the defining moment in your life, to feel so helpless that you're running up and down the shoreline and there's nothing you can do, and you're a half mile away from the farmhouse. There, there's nothing you can do. Now picture this. All they did was go down to the pond on a beautiful summer's day to enjoy a raft. You see, we are uncertainly mortal. But then, too, we need to face the fact, honestly, that we are inescapably mortal. We, we are inescapably mortal. And verse 6, it says this, Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Um, another way in the King James, it said this, and this was in Brahms' Requiem, any of you that know that, 
choral piece of music, verily mankind walketh in a vain show. Verily mankind walketh in a vain show. One commentator says this for the word that in the King James was walketh. He says it's used to describe the restless motion of a wild beast in a cage, raging from side to side, never still, never getting any further for all the racing backward and forward. In all honesty, isn't that a description of what humanity does year in and year out? Especially without taking God into its councils, it tries to patch up its civilization or solve its problems. How is that working for us right now, by the way? All the technology, all the conveniences, think of all of the barbaric things happening in our world. And yet we try to prolong idle dreams of greatness, or or we seek to escape the doom of our own mortality. We just don't want to think about it. That's why a lot of people don't want to go to hospitals. Or we'll just shun the idea of going to a funeral or a reviewal. I just, no, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. And so we see as of first importance as we reflect upon Israel's great king's words, the fact, do we face our own mortality honestly, that we are fleetingly mortal, we are uncertainly mortal, and we are inescapably mortal. Some do, some don't. Well then, something further, and it's this, if we're going to do a good job of handling life's brevity well, not only do we have to face the fact of it honestly, but we have to interpret its meaning intelligently. Now bear with me on this. We need to interpret its meaning intelligently. In other words, our our reaction to life's swiftness determines whether or not we shall play the fool or be the sons and daughters God wants us to be. So I come to one individual and I say, Sir, you only have a short time on this planet. And uh, after just a few years, give or take a few, after just a few years, um, you will be placed in the ground and the sod will be put back over you, and you'll return to dust. How are you going to respond? Two different ways. The first is to say, wow, if I don't have that much time here on earth, I'm just going to have as much fun as I can. I'm going to grab for the gold ring. I'm going to go with gusto. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. That's one way that people respond to this. I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. That's one response. Another response is, hmm, if that's the case, I better make sure that I'm doing things in life that will provide me with a proving and a training ground for eternity. Therefore, I'm going to work in my life to to build into my life all of the things that are good and redemptive. I'm going to have purpose. I'm going to help other people. I'm going to love without reservation. I'm going to study and learn and seek to draw near to God. This is what I mean by interpreting the situation intelligently. Everyone's faced with the same reality of the brevity of life. Some interpret it one way, have fun. Others interpret the other way, which is to say, I need to use this as a proving ground and a training ground for eternity. This is what I mean by interpreting. And by the way, everyone interprets life, whether they think they do or not, by how they live but what their values are and their attitudes. I suspect most of us are somewhere in the middle. We're not way over here, but we're not necessarily over here too. It's a little bit of having our cake and eating it too. Very opposite ways of responding, aren't they? 
And I submit to you that in these two attitudes, we have what I mean when I say that life's brevity must be interpreted. And Scripture says that our future will be either wonderful or woeful, depending on the interpretation we give and what we do with it. Verse 6, again, man is a mere phantom. He goes to and fro, bustles about only in vain, heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. People, if God is left out of the picture, that is the interpretation to which you are finally driven. There's nothing more. It's interesting, a guy named Walter Littman years ago wrote a book, A Preface to Morals, and, and he talked about today's enlightened person. And, and he said that there are three different ways that, that people view life. Some people view it as a comedy, some as a high tragedy, and others as just plain farce. You know, some as a comedy. You know, life is just a one big joke, one big party, and that's how some people, uh, you know, take life. Others view it as a, a farce. They become cynical, and they just think, what a joke. Not like funny, just what a joke. This is pathetic. And then others, and Lippmann would say he was one of these that would view it as a, as a high tragedy, and he would use that phrase in, in more of its philosophical understanding that, well, you know, we don't really know that, think that there are any eternal values, but we do have some human values, and, and, and quite frankly, life sucks. But let's just do the best we can to kind of muddle through and be good people anyway, and, and just, you know, kind of in the midst of the tragedy of it all, let's try to just you know, keep our heads to, the, our noses to the grindstone. Now, certainly that's better than just being a party animal. That's better than, uh, than becoming thoroughly cynical and being toxic to everyone around you, but, but not much better. You see, if life is a comedy, you snicker at it. If life is a farce, you snarl at it. If life is a tragedy, I guess you sigh over it. But my friends, there's a fourth and better way. This is the way that is presented in Scripture. And it tells us that in Jesus Christ, life is actually abundant, and we can sing about it. The fact of us singing earlier, watching your worship team sing with all their hearts, we have something to sing about. As a pastor, I would do... Uh, you know, certainly funerals, and uh, it was always interesting to watch because if you had a congregational song and you asked people to stand, there would be some people that would take the hymnal, open it up, and they were singing with all their hearts, even in the midst of having lost a loved one. Sad, but singing with all their hearts. You'd look at other people and they'd have the hymnal open and they're, they're kind of maybe being polite. And then you'd have people that wouldn't open the hymnal at all, and you'd look out and see them, and, and this isn't a put-down on them. It's just the reality. They'd be out there just, just stone-faced, no expression, not even trying to sing. And to me, it was always a metaphor about in the room, you've got these groups of people. You have people that have something to sing about. You have people that are sort of trying to figure it out or be polite or something. And then you have other people that they really, truly, the expression of what they're doing is really where they're at. They, they really don't have anything to sing about. And it probably feels very strange, uh, to, other than the cliches about, well, I'm sure Barney's up there looking down at us and all the other uh, things that people say to cope. But, but it was as if they're, they're hearing others sing praise to God and trust to God in the midst of what would certainly be a loss and a tragedy, and, and it just is a non-compute. This is either true or not. 
And Scripture tells us that in Christ we can have abundant life, that life is neither lonely nor futile. Rather, it is life under divine sponsorship and with a divine commission. It's a life with purpose. And most importantly, it's a life with a future. And the choice is before us. How do we handle life's brevity with self-defeating folly or with redeeming wisdom that is a gift from Jesus Christ? C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. And if false, is of no importance. What it can never be is moderately important. It's either true or it's not. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. If it's not true, it's of no importance. The Apostle Paul says says the same. He says, if this isn't true, if we've only hoped for Jesus in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in fact, Christ did rise from the dead. Christ has redeemed us. This is not, my friends, of moderate importance. Well, what are we to do? Face the fact of life's brevity honestly, yes. Interpret its meaning intelligently, yes. And then one last thing, again, we can believe in victory over it wholeheartedly. The closing verses of Psalm 39, when contrasted to the opening verses, are like a a doxology of triumph. At the beginning, the king is despairing, but by the end, something has changed. An old-time Commentator Alexander McLaren points out that verse 7 is the turning point. After all of the negatives, it says this, But, now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. It's like everything was going one way, however, but. And everything changes and swings on that word. And when the but is to the positive, it can be one of the most beautiful words in the English language. And from that point on, God is in the psalmist's vision, and that makes the difference between night and day. You see, King David gets a glimpse that God is his hope, the scriptures tell us. My hope is in you, he says. And you know what? People need that kind of hope. We all need that kind of hope. And not just hope for coping with our current lives, though we want that kind of hope too. But our hope is with God in heaven. We don't talk much about heaven anymore. Uh, The the uh, older generations talked a lot about heaven, and maybe we said, well, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I suspect that our generations will never be accused of that. We don't think about that much. But, But our hope is in God, and it's a hope for life eternal, not simply a hope for navigating our day to day lives. But note, David also sees that God is his healer. In verse 8, it says this, Save me from all my transgressions. Save me. He's my Savior. Why is this important? Because sin and imperfection are what gives us that uncomfortable sense of loneliness and frustration as we think about the shortness of our own lives. You know what? Each one of us need to be healed at the center, at our very cores. You see, in some respects, we are all allergic to ourselves, therefore also to others. We can feel like orphans in God's universe. 
we can feel ourselves to be creatures of time or, or the playthings of, of a world that is too much for us. Upon the contrary, a forgiven child of God is at home in the universe. Why? Because a child of God is at home in God and with God. For David and for us, God is our hope, our healer, our, our savior. And then, then finally, God sees, David sees God as his host. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you. I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Note, David is not saying that he's alien to God, but the reverse of that. I am a stranger along with you. That is what he is saying. This world is not my home. I am just a passing through, as the old song used to say. I live in a world where, for many, life is futile and, and, and frail and feeble and fleeting, but as a pilgrim, I am with you, my companion, my protector, my guide. I like Moffat's translation. It says this, older language, but it says, I am but a guest of thine. I am but a guest of thine, which can only mean one thing. If I am his guest, he is my host, meeting my needs and looking after my interests, and, and, and I'm in his hand. A stranger, yes, mortality is not for me, and mortality is not for you, though I'm faced with it, as are you. But in company with God, one day I shall walk out of mortality into immortality. One day all who are believers in Jesus Christ, followers of him, will walk out of mortality into immortality. So, you know, when sickness lays me low, and it will, when weariness numbs my body, when advancing years take their toll on my strength, I know that though my outer man perishes, my inner man is being renewed day by day. I know that I was not built for time alone, but actually I was built for eternity, and so were you. And that in company with God, one day I will break out of this prison house of pain and march to the music of heaven's deathless ones. With you, God, that is the answer to life's brevity. With God in youth, with God in manhood, with God in womanhood, with God in old age, with God in health, with God in death, with God in glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the songs that was just sung so beautifully earlier, the, the refrain was this, How I love you, how I love you, you have not forsaken me. How I love you, how I love you, with you is where I want to be. With God now, with God in glory. My friend, whoever you are, this morning, and I would pray that we are all believers in Jesus Christ and have committed our lives to him, but, but whoever you are this morning, how do you handle your life's brevity? I don't mean as a, a generalized uh, theoretical question, but actually in your own life. How do you handle it? Do you uh, face the fact of it honestly? Do you interpret its meaning intelligently? 
And do you believe in victory over it wholeheartedly because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, offering his body and his blood to be broken and shed for our sake so that we would have eternity with him? How I love you, how I love you, with you is where I want to be. Amen. Um, if there were some things uh, that Mark said that resonate with you and you'd like to talk about them more or if we can help, um, you can certainly write down prayer requests here, put those in the mailbox. But if you'd like someone to pray with you right now, um, at the end of the service, there's people that would pray for you there at the, that sign on the side. Or if there's something you'd like to have more of an extended conversation with, um, talk to Jennifer and we can get you connected with somebody too. These, this is a timely and important message. So thank you so much for bringing it. Thanks for being there to support our congregations. Get to know these guys better. That information's there in the, um, the lobby if you'd like to take a look at that. Um, just a quick fun side note, too, actually. Um, there was a covenant church that was kind of learning from us. They were, they were coming here this summer to, to, um, to, to give their team some experience. They've up and planted now. Covenant Catalyst is up and going. They are meeting once a month now at Luther Seminary. Uh, and they're going to go weekly, I think it's in December. Also, Tim Anderson's brother just got approved to be a covenant pastor. He is going to be planting a covenant church in the Powderhorn neighborhood. So that'll be fun. We'll have some conversations with them to see what God's going to do through all that. So it's an exciting partnership. Let me pray as we go forth. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, excited to be a part of this thing that is so much bigger than us. And it's bigger than any one church. It's bigger than any one denomination. It's bigger than any generation. You are a timeless God, and you've invited us to experience eternity with you. We pray, Lord, that um, those words will resonate deep within us and that we'll respond to your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.